Can you really go from stressed to resilient, especially after the two years we just had? My guest today says yes, and she's written the book to help you do it. It's nothing but a G thing now on Boss Better Now. You're listening to Boss Better Now. This show is sponsored by Joe Mullen Associates. Now here's your host, speaker and author, Joe Mall. Welcome back, boss heroes, to your regular dose of advice, humor, and encouragement for bosses everywhere. I am so glad that you are joining us, however and wherever that might be. I do always love getting notes from you about how you consume this show. I've gotten notes from some of you who say that you listen during your commute or while having lunch or while walking your dog. So wherever or however you are listening, thank you for sharing some of your headspace with us. I want to start today with a special announcement. Drum roll, please. I should actually have had a drum roll sound teed up. Well, let's do it the old-fashioned way. Drum roll, please. Okay, that's just me banging on my chest. But one month from today, we are going to hold our next Boss Better Virtual Summit. That's right. On Tuesday, December 6th, we're, we're going to gather once again online for a one-day live engaging virtual conference designed to help leaders navigate the unique people management challenges we face in this new age of work. There's the sound effect that we probably should have used with the announcement. Anyway, whether you are an experienced leader looking to level up your knowledge, a new manager who's been recently promoted, or an exhausted leader somewhere in between, this is a can't-miss learning and development experience for bosses everywhere. We've got some incredible speakers lined up, and the sessions are short with breaks in between so you can attend and still attend to your work that day. And here's the great news. We have a special pre-sale happening right now that allows podcast listeners, that's you, to get tickets for a limited time at half price. Yes, I did just use a bicycle horn as the half price exciting announcement piece. All you have to do is go to bossbettervirtualsummit.com and use the promo code podcast at checkout, and you can attend the entire event for just $199. Oh, and if you can't attend the live event, register anyway, and we will send you the recordings, which you can access for 60 days following the summit. So one more time, our next Boss Better Virtual Summit will be on Tuesday, December 6th, and you can get tickets for a limited time at half price by using promo code podcast at checkout. To use that discount before it expires, to see the schedule, and to review the speakers and sessions, just go to bossbettervirtualsummit.com. And now today is a special day here on the show because for the first time in the history of our podcast, over 80 episodes, we have a returning guest. As you know, I invite guests on the show now and then, but not for every episode. But this is special because we have had so much fun learning from Dr. G around here that when her new book came out recently, I said, we have to invite her back. Resilience expert Deborah Gilboa, MD, a.k.a. Dr. G, works with families, organizations, and businesses to identify the mindset and strategies to turn stress to an advantage. 
Dr. G is a board-certified attending family physician and is a leading media personality seen regularly on The Today Show, Good Morning America, and The Doctors. She works with groups across multiple generations to rewire their attitudes and beliefs and create resilience through personal accountability and a completely different approach to adversity. She's also the author of the new book, From Stressed to Resilient, The Guide to Handle More and Feel It Less. Please welcome back to the show, Dr. G. You got the applause sound effect. Much. The applause is amazing. <laughs> I'm so glad to have you back. You get the unique distinction of being our first returning guest. I couldn't think of a better person to join us. Thanks for being here. I'm really honored. Thanks for having me again, Joe. And you know that that nothing but a G thing line that I used during the preview, that was probably a little bit forced, but that can't be the first <laughs> time somebody has dropped that on you, right? I, I often get Dr. G is in the house. Oh, because, okay. Because we're all trying to be hip. You know, but yeah, I like, I like all the, you know, it's funny. I didn't actually pick this. One of the amazing front office staff at my office years ago picked it because she was tired of listening to people try so hard to stumble their way through my last name when they would call for an appointment. And she would just say, did you want to see Dr. G? And they'd say, yes, with this relief in their voice. So it started as just a compassionate step for people. I love it. Well, congratulations on the book. This thing is impressive. I'm going to hold it up for the camera here. You did some work, my friend. For those who are listening, this book isn't like a, a compact novel-sized book. It actually resembles a robust workbook because you went seriously deep on this topic, and you obviously wanted to create something people would actually use, so it's built to write in, to work through in stages. Tell us the story about how this book came to life. So I'm a family doctor, like you pointed out, and I see, so that means I see kids and their parents and sometimes their grandparents and even great grandparents in my office. And I had been noticing after I'd been in practice, probably five years, and I'm at a federally qualified health center. I see folks from over a hundred countries mm -hmm. right here in Pittsburgh. And I had been noticing that my training was doing a good job helping me prevent illness and injury in folks and helping them recover from illness and injury, but it hadn't taught me how to help people truly be well and be pleased with their life. Mm. And I wondered what's in that gap. And so I turned to the medical literature as I had been trained to do. And what I found is that the medical literature says, well, that's patient resilience, mm. which I will admit sounds a little bit like it might be a cop-out, but it also might be true. So <laughs> I said, okay, if that's true, what is that? What is resilience? Well, this is about 15 years ago. And at the time, most of the research about resilience was about combat veterans and other people with post-traumatic stress disorder and folks with severe debilitating mental illness. Mm. And that is all interesting, but most of it was not directly applicable to my patients. And so when there, I've also been taught that when there isn't the research you need, go do it. And I was lucky enough over this last decade to partner with a lab at Carnegie Mellon University's Tepper School of Business. And we're really interested in what is resilience in adult professionals. So first we had to figure out the working definition of resilience. So can I start there? Let's go. Okay. Resilience. When I ask students, sometimes I get to work with students, I say, what's resilience? They always say, bouncing back from something bad. And I say that is 100% true if you're a rubber band. I like to ask fourth graders if they are rubber bands because it gets them all agitated. They're like, no, <laughs> people. Right. So the definition for resilience in humans is the ability to navigate change, 
with intention and purpose. Hmm. Interestingly, Joe, in the business sense, the definition of resilience for organizations is the ability to navigate change mission oriented. Hmm. And when you think about that, it's really the same thing, just on a personal level, the ability to come through change pointed towards your personal mission. What's your intention and your purpose? And the first thing that really struck us about this is that it wasn't the ability to navigate struggle or difficulty or challenge. It was the ability to navigate change. And in there, in the years and years of research that we dove into, what does, why is it about change? All change really helped me understand what it is that I need and my patients need, and really everybody needs to understand about stress and then how to get from there, how to use that to get to resilience. Mm. So there's so much built in here that I want to ask you about. And and the first thing that I come to is this idea that obviously change or, or disruption is a constant, right? That That's sort of inherent in the definitions that you just gave us, both at the individual level and the organizational level. Uh, we're going to constantly be asked to navigate change. So how do we do it with intention and purpose? Or how does an organization do it in a mission-oriented way? But I guess the first thing that I want to ask you about is, are there certain kinds of change or disruption that are harder to navigate than others? So here's the thing about change. And it's so, I'm so excited to get to speak to your audience about it because in the absence of change, you know, for that 20 minutes or week, if things are going really, really well, that's when your, your people don't need a boss. We Mm. only need leaders to prepare for navigate or recover from change. If there's, if really not, you know, if you own a movie theater and the movies are set and you've been running them already for a couple of weeks and they're not going to change this week and your ticket prices are set and your concession stand is laid in and your staff schedule is good and nobody's going to call off. If there's nothing, that's a good week for your family vacation. Yeah. It is when there is any change, any disruption, anything different, that's when we need leaders. And the frustrating thing for leaders is that I really believe leaders have been, they've been fed an untruth. They've been fed this belief that if they're a good enough leader, their people will be able to navigate change pretty easily. They'll be able to accept change and move forward with it. Mm-hmm. And, and so when people struggle with change, leaders think one of two things. Either it's a referendum on my leadership and I'm not good at this, or you people think I'm not good at this, or you don't trust me, uh, or you haven't seen everything I've done to be forward thinking about our work, or They see it as a referendum on the character of their people. You people are lazy, obstinate, unmotivated. Mm. And the struggle with change is a reflex, a deep-seated brain reflex. It's not a referendum on leadership, and it's not a referendum on character. So all that to answer your question, to say different changes are hard for different people. I was the kind of kid in school, and I wouldn't be surprised if you were too, Joe, who loved a good fire drill. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I loved an assembly that messed up the usual schedule. Yes. I loved that change. Yes. Right? Variety anything, is the spice of life. Yes. Anything that took us out of the routine. Yep. And people say, oh, kids love routine. I was not one of those kids. I love that kind of change. So a change in the schedule, you know, if you'd had to message me today and say, hey, can we do this an hour later? If I was free, no problem. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, oh, good. Look, I have this time free now and I'll just move those things later. Yeah. For some people, a change in the schedule is really disrupting. It's really a big change. 
But in another way, if you were to have said to me, hey, um, I'm not going to be there today, but somebody else is going to interview you that you've never met, I would do it Mm. and I would handle it. But it would be more upsetting for me because for me, I love connection. And so I love getting to talk to somebody that I've already made a connection with and that I really feel like, oh, we're going to move things even further. So different changes are hard for different people. And leaders should not expect that they're going to be able to predict what change is hard for whom. So you said something a few minutes ago that I want to make sure I heard correctly, which is that I think you said uh, change is one of the only times when employees really need their leaders. Did I get that right? Did I hear that right? I love this idea because, you know, we know that change produces some predictable emotions and reactions and patterns of thinking. And what I, what I guess you're saying is because we know that, because we can spot it, because we can see it coming, then we know we need to make ourselves available as leaders to get in there and help people through it, not penalize them for, for feeling it, right? Absolutely. And the reason I want to point out that it's a reflex Joe, you have kids and you've taken them to the doctor for their well checks. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not your kid's doctor, just for clarity. But if I was, if you brought one of your kiddos in to see me uh, and I'd sit them up on or you would sit them up on my exam table, the three of us would talk. Eventually, I'd listen with my stethoscope. I'd let them listen with my stethoscope. And I would take out my reflex hammer. Mm -hmm. And unsurprisingly to you, I would tap your daughter's knee Mm -hmm. and she would kick, right? Now, if I stood directly in front of her and hit her knee with my reflex hammer, what would happen to me? You'd get kicked. Would you chastise your daughter for disrespectfully kicking the doctor? No. No. You might, at least in your inside voice, think, why was the doctor such an idiot (laughs) to stand right in front of my child? They knew what would happen. And yet, this reflex that our brains have when we encounter the possibility of change, even change we want, change we asked for, change we work for, we have these three reflexes. Our brains try to figure out, what could I lose? Can I trust this? So distrust and what will be uncomfortable about it? And leaders continually stand right in front of their people, announce change and get kicked. (laughs) What we need to know is how to stand to the side, have empathy for the kick as opposed to betrayal, hurt, frustration. Just Yeah. Oh yeah. That happens. That's your brain. Your brain's working right. Then we have to help people navigate through that to the next parts of the cycle. So I have a cycle and I'm happy in your show notes to give folks the link so they can download it themselves and see it. But change gets announced, even the possibility of a change. Your wife says to you, oh, my family might be having a a reunion get together next June, just the possibility. And your brain says, what could I lose? Did I have work planned for that time? Was there a a weekend with my buddies I was hoping to get in that might be at the same time? Will we miss anything big for the kids here at home? Can I trust it? Boy, does her family follow through on stuff like that? Or Mm. if we're the ones to put in the deposit, are we going to be holding a really big money bag at the end of that? And then uncomfortable. Oh, we're definitely going to have to have that night that my wife's brother cooks. And that's tragic, right? (laughs) Whatever it is. Through Even if you're also thinking, oh, I love those people. We've been wanting to do this for a while. I'm so happy it's in the works. Your brain insists on making sure that it's not dangerous to you. It's basically your brain being like a 14-year-old boy being like, but could you die, bro? (laughs) (laughs) Our brain does that every single time there's the possibility of a change, even a great change. Um, A really quick story just to demonstrate that. Yeah. I got called by a company that I'd worked with a couple of years ago, and they said, hey, 
we did a thing that we thought was a good thing and it's going terribly. Here was the story. They did what a lot of consultants recommend. They surveyed their people. And what they found is that 96% of their people thought that their payroll system was clunky and awful. And they listened and they researched, they asked, you know, HR, can you bring us back proposals? And they looked at three different payroll companies and software and they picked the one that made the most sense and they implemented it and they announced it and people lost their minds. Mm. This is how they get paid. Yeah. They have to know how to put in time off and their hours and make sure it gets signed off on correctly. And they have just barely got their current password memorized and steps. And now they've got to do something new. And everybody, and they said, you people spoke, we listened, we've answered, here you go. And they waited for the parade. And instead of a parade, there was loss and distrust and discomfort. Mm -hmm. And the leaders felt really understandably frustrated. You asked for this. And we did it. So why are you having such a hard time? And well, they it's made a choice about great change, but then they didn't do the work that you're describing to to move them through it in a way that addresses all of those emotions and fears and reactions. And yet we can all remember a time where we announced a change that we thought was going to make our employees or our colleagues or our customers or our family happy. And we were met with that, what my kids call the splash zone of the loss and the distrust and the discomfort. And that splashed on us. And we're like, what? I didn't know this was a water ride. What the heck? <laughs> and so knowing that it's coming, knowing that no matter how great the change, parents love to show those videos where they tell their kids they're going to, I don't know, like the county courthouse and they're really taking them to Disney World, right? right? And, and there's always one kid on the video, you can see it on their face that like, even while they're like, I'm supposed to be really happy, they're like, ah. <laughs> still processing, like still, right. wait, and yeah, how do I feel about this? Feelings, ah. And it's not because that kid is a problem kid. It's because yeah. these rough reflexes are just there to protect us. So when as leaders, we can recognize, right, this is going to be great, but first it's going to be hard. Yes. So that kind of sets us up for what we need to do first, right? So what are the things that, if we put this in the context uh, for a lot of the leaders who listen to this podcast, where they have to announce some kind of change to their personnel, maybe it's a minor change, like an adjustment to the operating hours, or which might not be a minor change for some folks, but or, or maybe it's a more of a, a major change where our, our um, company just got bought. And we are merging with a larger organization. All those things create perceptions of instability and fear and many of the reactions that you're talking about. So what do employees in those situations need to hear from their leaders first? And then what do they need to, to hear or experience later? Okay. The first thing is they need a leader who's first navigated, put on their own oxygen mask who's navigated this change for themselves. So that's that allusion to the flight attendant mm -hmm. saying, if we lose cabin pressure, please put on your own oxygen mask first. They don't say that because they hate children. Maybe they do <laughs> hate children, but that's not why they say it. They say it because if you don't put on your own oxygen mask first, you may need to not even get the other person's oxygen mask on before you both succumb. Right. You have to navigate this change for yourself. Listen, Joe, a lot of bosses are in the, in the position of having to announce change that wasn't even their decision. Right. And that they right? too that, are afraid of or nervous about or don't agree with. Right. And entrepreneurs sometimes announce change to their people that was their decision 
and they're afraid of it and they're nervous about it and they're not totally sure it was the right thing to do. And, you know, worse, it was our choice then. But even so, so the first thing is to navigate this cycle for yourself. And the first thing you have to do is to stop the self-blame. Stop thinking, boy, if I was more knowledgeable, better at my job, more confident, stronger, this wouldn't be hard for me. Yes, it would. It's a brain reflex. Your brain's trying to keep you alive. The, the good news is we are all currently alive. The bad news is our brain has to look at every change as suspect. Mm. So go through the process that you're about to help your people through first for yourself. And that involves taking a few steps. One, empathy. Empathy for yourself. Actually, just empathy. Some people call it giving yourself some grace. Just saying, yeah. oh, right, this is hard. Mm-hmm. Feel your feelings for a minute, whether that's frustration or annoyance or nervousness or shame or fear, whatever it is, just feel it for a minute. Be like, okay, this is useful to me because when we try to shove our feelings down and don't feel them, that's when we get a lot of negative physical and emotional side effects of stress. But also if I'm feeling this, I can certainly expect that a lot of my people will too. So -hmm. it's going to make you a better leader to notice how it lands with you. So just notice how it lands with you. Then Take a little bit, if you can, sometimes someone comes to you because some of our leaders are what I think of as the squished baloney in the sandwich. They've got the pressure from above mm-hmm. and the pressure from below in the org right. chart and they are feeling really squished. But if you can take one minute to say, all right, how am I going to navigate this? How is this actually mission oriented? Or is there any way that this change gets me closer to something that I actually want? If you can find that way through, if you can figure out how to, and and if it's something that's just terrible, right? Um, you found out that your company has been actually under huge financial strain and mm. they're being acquired by your competitor and nothing about that feels good to you. Right. You figure out, okay, but it does let me tell X number of people that they get to keep their jobs. And that is important to me. And I want them to see that it not to say to them that it could have been worse, but to say to myself, it could have been worse to say, Mm -hmm. okay, I see how there is some things about this that align with my goals, my goals of keeping my people employed, of being able to support them and then being able to support their families. It keeps me employed, let's assume. Right. So it's aligned with my goal in that way. Then I'm going to figure out, okay, what choices do I have? The way to turn down, you cannot turn off those reflexes. Just like you can't turn off the safety mechanism in your car that locks your seatbelt when you slam on the brakes. You just mm-hmm. can't, right? It's built right. in. You can't turn this off, but you can turn it down. And the way we turn it down is by asking one question. What choices do I have? Mm-hmm. So as soon as you figure out, boy, there's been this big budget cut or this hours change or personnel, to whatever it is, what choices do we have left in this new parameter? Once you've answered that for yourself, you are already taking resilient steps. You are navigating change and trying to come through it, pointing towards your intention and purpose. Yes. Then you're ready to talk to your people. Not to tell them what the choices are and that you've figured this out and they shouldn't be scared and they shouldn't be mad. That doesn't work. To gently stand next to them while they go through this cycle. Yes. I talked about the worst part of the cycle, right? You hear about a change, you feel loss and distrust and discomfort. Even while you might be feeling happiness and excitement and pride, whatever, you're still feeling lost, distrust, discomfort. The, the active part is you think, okay, what choices do I have? Just by asking that question before you've even listed them, you've engaged the 
ventromedial prefrontal cortex of your brain, which is okay. Now thinking. you're just showing off, Doc. But I okay, am. I'm with you. <laughs> that's the most sciencey I will get. I promise. But asking that question, you turn on the thinking part, and it really suppresses the amygdala, mm-hmm. which is giving you the fear response. And by asking the question, that's choice. When you pick some and move forward with them, that's engagement. And that brings you to the goal of this whole cycle, reunification, not necessarily reunification with your new payroll system or with the company that's acquiring you reunification with your intention and purpose. Yeah. This is who I mean to be through this change. This is who we as a department mean to be through this change. This is who we as people ask me a lot. They say, you know, can you give me a solid example? And I say, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I mean, like the first two weeks, Mm -hmm. I got calls from a lot of clients saying, what do we do? How do we navigate this mess? Partially because I'm a medical doctor and they thought I might understand the infectious disease part. And partially because I help change, I help companies with change resistance. So they said, what should we do? And they're basically saying, should we stay open or closed? Should we keep our people here or go home? And I said, I don't know, but your mission does. Joe, all of your United States listeners know that the postal service knew what they would do about anything because it's right there in their mission statement Mm -hmm. that most of us know through hail and sleet and wind and rain, we deliver the mail. Yep. So they knew they had to keep delivering the mail. They just had to figure out how were they going to do it? But for them, it wasn't a choice of like, should we close the post office? Right. All of them, just no more mail for the U S until this is over. Right. They can't, their, their mission is really clear. When your mission is really clear, it guides it doesn't make it easy. It doesn't simplify necessarily, mm-hmm. but it guides your choices and it lo- allows you to reunify with that mission. And not just mission, but you know the organizations who have done deeper values work, which we talk a lot about on this show, to really get clear on not just who are, are we and what are we trying to do in the world, but how do we operate? What, what's important to us? What are our values? Or you know, for my organization, my little company here, we call them our, our five commitments, the commitments that we make to the people that we work with and the people, the commitments that we make to the people that work here. And those kinds of things have served as a kind of compass during times of difficulty, change, challenge. Uh, And so uh, to be able to point back to those and use them to shape our responses uh, is critical. It is critical. A compass is, I think, the best possible analogy because you keep referring to it to keep correcting course. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're always getting it right. Yep. Absolutely not. It doesn't mean you're never blown off course. It doesn't mean you're never confused or upside down. It means you know where to go to reorient yourself every time you need to reorient yourself or your yeah. company. So when you have to tell your people about a change, if you're clear about your mission as a boss, and I think so many people, because I love to read stuff that the reviews that people write about your podcast, there's so many people tune into your content because they're getting more and more clarity about their purpose as a mm. boss who it is they want to be, how it is they want to be when they are responsible for the employment of other people. And so the more clarity you have around that, the simpler it will get to navigate your people navigating change. Right, right. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about helping people through change as a leader, but we're going to pause briefly in the middle. And I know you know what's coming. I'm excited. Because you've been through this before, Dr. G. 
Every week on our show, we do what we call the camaraderie question of the week. Bosses build camaraderie on teams by making it easier for people to find things in common with each other. That's why on our show, for every episode, we give you a question, leaders, that you can use at meetings or in huddles or during one-on-ones to facilitate connection and build camaraderie. And I did give Dr. G a heads up that we would be doing this. And right before we hit record, I told her what the question is for this episode. And she is gamely playing along. Here it is. What is one thing that people are generally surprised to find out about you? You want to go first, my friend? I will go first. I really went two different ways with this. Like if I was in a group of people and I was trying to find places to bond, mm-hmm. I I think the thing that I would tell them is that I don't like chicken. Wow. <laughs> that first of all, I, I love like the chicken. answer. Right. I don't mind chickens, but like, and this makes, this makes it really hard for me to go most places and, and not offend my host or hostess. (laughs) So I have eaten chicken, but I I don't like chicken. And this I have found leads when I'm willing to confess this sin. Mm. I, I find out all these commonly adored foods that other people don't like, and I feel less alone. There you go. I love it. And it's funny because in my head, the first thing I'm going through is all of the things that I experience in the world as pleasures that that you don't. I'm like, oh, that means that you don't you don't eat wings. You don't like wings. It means that you don't like fajitas, chicken fajitas. Oh my goodness. But then like, hey, to each their own, right? Right. <laughs> How do you What's navigate that when you go someplace and it's only chicken? Do you just suck right. it, it up? Or you... I, there definitely probably are some banquet managers that probably think I'm vegetarian, <laughs> even though I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have the vegetarian option, please. Thanks. Right, exactly. Because as a speaker, you know, you often get fed a meal without anybody having had a chance beforehand to see what you might want. And so I often I'm like, is there an extra vegetarian option? <laughs> but well, it's I, not out of any altruism. It's really just, I don't like chicken. It's just a, it's a, a press, a preference thing. Yeah, absolutely. No. And, and thank you for answering the question in a really colorful way. Like when I, um, when we talk about our camaraderie questions of the week here on the show, we encourage leaders to try to encourage members of their teams to reach for something unique and different. You know, not sometimes people would answer a question like, what's one thing that people are generally surprised to find about you? And you're like, oh, well, you know, I'm easygoing, you know, and it's like, that's not really an answer. Like, tell me something really to find that out about me. I am not easygoing. No, me either. Uh, My answer to this question is actually something I have talked about on the show before, and I tend to try to go with my first blush reaction to these questions. I'm sure there's probably some more colorful answer I could come up with, but what people tend to generally be surprised to find out about me is that I am an introvert in every way that you can define what an introvert is. Um, I I really value time alone. It's where I get my energy from. Uh, people think introversion is about social comfort, that that means I'm shy. And I'm not. I'm not a shy person. Uh, introversion is about where you get your energy from, how you like to process information. And so when I spend a day in front of a room full of people, especially if I'm doing work around personality differences and I ask people to type me out at the end of the day, everybody automatically guesses that I'm an extrovert. 
uh, because I'm I'm outgoing and I'm verbal and I'm friendly and and you can be all of those things and still be an introvert. The difference Absolutely. is for me when if I spend a a day in front of a room full of people or facilitating a workshop, my gas tank is empty at the end of that day. Whereas for an extrovert, they would be really energized by all of that. So when I have to work on something, I prefer to start alone. When I have to recharge, I prefer to be alone. I'm an introvert. It's really good for bosses to know too, because how people present in Mm -hmm. group settings, we think we know. And the, the, like, the more we identify with someone, the more we think we know how they'll react, how they identify, what's important to them. And so we're much more likely to make assumptions with people that we feel really connected to or that we identify with. So ask, like I tell my medical students all the time, you don't even know what you don't know about right. people. Ask. Great point. And that's the camaraderie question of the week. Thank you for playing along, my friend. That's really fun. Uh, I want to get back to just a couple other questions that I have for you about this book. And the great thing about this book is you've clearly plotted a journey for people to do some work uh, moving from start to finish. So if I am someone who has really experienced a lot of burnout over the last couple of years or just finds that my reserves, what we might call resiliency, is not as accessible to me as it was perhaps prior to 2020. How does this book help me? What is the work I'm going to be doing along the way? Well, so what I really love about this book is I got, I I found a way to design it so that I don't have to be an expert in you. I can remind you about your expertise in you. Mm. What I want you to do is definitely read the introduction because in the introduction, first, I'm going to give you a little bit of the science and it's going to be familiar to you because we've talked about some of these ideas already just in this episode, but I'm going to explain to you what it is about change that's hard and help you view stress differently, help you think about stress as uh, getting you stronger, like exercise helps get you stronger for a physical endeavor. Yep. It can be damaging. You don't want to exercise injured. But it's also the only way to get towards that goal of being able to have a stronger physical endeavor is to do some exercise. In the same way, if you want to accomplish more, if you want to have a better relationship or a bigger company or a job that's different or a hobby that's different, you, I want you to feel less overwhelmed, less winded by the stresses that go along with those changes. And then I ask you a bunch of questions in mm-hmm. the introduction. I ask you to think about what change is top of mind for you. What is it that's draining your resilience right now? And then I ask you to do a little pretest to figure mm-hmm. out among the eight skills that help people navigate change better, which ones feel really solid for you. And which ones do you feel like, oh, I could polish that more, or I don't feel as competent in that. And then one more step, I say, okay, now think about the change in particular that's bugging you right now. If you could just snap your fingers, which of these would you want? And then you go to that section of the book. There's no right order to work through this book. And as a matter of fact, you don't need to work through the entire book at any one point ever. Mm -hmm. So, So for example, this morning I was in a conversation with a colleague who was just back to work first day after his dad passed away. And he was trying to figure out how to build his resilience back up because the pace of his work, he's in media, doesn't really change. And the there's constant balls to juggle. And I said, and he's got people depending on him. You know, he's a boss. And he said, you got one idea for me, Dr. G? And I said, well, of the eight skills, I'd say that you might 
be best served by one of these three right now, building connections. And he's like, oh, I'm all over that. I got connections with a million people. I feel really tied in. I've had tremendous support during like the funeral and before while my dad was sick and everything. And I said, okay, great. Setting boundaries, deciding what you will take on right now. And if there's some things that you can delay picking back up that you've set down recently while you're going through this process. And he said, oh yeah, maybe. And I said, in managing discomfort. And he's like, oh yeah. So he's going to pick one of those. And then if you if he was looking at this book, he'd go to the section either for setting boundaries or managing discomfort. And right. he'd find there four exercises and he might pick one and try it. It's going to take him somewhere between 10 and 20 minutes. But by the end of it, he's going to feel a little bit stronger in that skill of setting boundaries or of managing discomfort so that when he puts the book back down, he feels a little bit better armed to handle the changes that he's dealing with and be and feel resilient. So this book isn't just a tool for uh, the ambiguous idea of change that we want to get better at that comes down the pike. It's if I'm in it and I'm struggling, I can pick this up and I can reach for one of the activities, one of the exercises, which will help me get clarity around my thinking or help me hone around some of these specific skills that are going to, that are going to help me in the moment. Absolutely. Another advantage is there's really nothing in this book that is so private or personal that you couldn't use this in a work setting. Mm -hmm. I really designed this on purpose so that, listen, I don't want you to collect everybody's papers and read their answers, but there's nothing in here that you wouldn't want to read out if you were in a group meeting and saying, hey, everybody, yeah. you know, we have this really big change that's recently happened. And I downloaded this cycle from this person I heard on a podcast. And I asked right. each of you to tell me in this cycle, where are you about the acquisition that we just had, that new company we're taking on? And some of you told me that you are still mostly in distrust, but also a little bit in engagement. And some of you told me you're big in discomfort, but a little bit in choice. So we're going to try and move everybody through that a little bit by really focusing on one of these skills. And the one that I picked for today is finding options. The skill yeah. of finding, knowing that there's more than one path to get us to our best result. So we're going to do this activity about finding options that turns out to be about music. So I just, you know, I'm handing out or I emailed you this PDF and will you guys sit with me for five minutes? We're going to do this exercise that's about choosing different kinds of music to listen to. And at the end of it, it's going to just, we're just going to talk for a couple of minutes and debrief. And yep. at the end of it, when you debrief, your people are going to be able to answer differently questions about when you feel like there's one obvious favorite choice of yours, how do you dive in and find other choices? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I knew I wanted to ask you about today, and, and it, you kind of led me there perfectly, so thank you for that, is this idea of how willing do our team members need to be to become more resilient in order for us to help them? And I guess that's probably the wrong question at this point, right? Because you're talking about understanding the the cycle and understanding the experiences that people go through when they're in change. So how do bosses help team members become more resilient when maybe they, they don't seem willing to do so? I think you've asked a great question, Joe, and it's partially because especially as we've gone through the pandemic, a lot of people have heard this word resilience as a demand mm -hmm. from their leadership. We just need you to be more resilient. Basically, it became a nicer way of saying, suck it up, buttercup. Right. And that is not acceptable. There's no empathy in that statement. So I'm not at all surprised when people say to me, you know what? I'm sick of being resilient. I don't want to be ready for the next thing. Yep. I want things to get easier. I spoke at a um, 
a conference and a woman very early in the, she raised her hand and she said, Hey, uh, could you do me a favor? And, and she was obviously more performing for the group, but she said, could you never use the phrase? It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. <laughs> she said, because I don't want to run a marathon anymore. I'm run out. I want to sit yeah. down and rest. And although she was certainly frustrated and it didn't really fit in that moment, it was a really well taken expression. She really was expressing not just for herself, but for a lot of people in the room that they're tired of being asked to just step up and handle more. So it is absolutely important for bosses to realize that framing this, contextualizing this is crucial. Just saying to your people, okay, I heard this thing, I bought this book, we're going to be more resilient, may very well land with them as we're going to stop complaining and get more done. Right. And, and putting in the work to help our teams with resilience doesn't mean we also have permission to keep putting them in circumstances where they need to be resilient all the time, right? There is a kind of backlash to the word right now around what maybe, maybe instead of asking me to be more resilient, I could just have less work. Yeah. Maybe you could hire more people or make right. this a little easier yeah. in some way, stop demanding as much. So uh, a patient of mine asked me recently, saw me on a TV segment. And a lot of my patients don't know that I do this work because they mm-hmm. just doesn't overlap. He said to me, hey, I saw you on TV, uh, so I got to ask you a question. Why would I want to be resilient? Like, can I, I just, I want to be done with hard things. Why do, and I said, it's such a good question. The point of being resilient is just getting the life you want. It's having the energy to get the happiness you want. Yeah. So when we say to our folks, hey, I want to help you to feel the ravages of stress less, to be able to navigate change more competently. Mm more successfully in a way that works better for you. Those are some of the, that's the impetus behind this idea. I used resilient because to me, that word is salvation, but it's really important to know if it is for your people or not to say, I want to help you because I know you are in a really difficult spot. What if I could tell you ways to experience less suffering as a result of life? What if I could tell you there's a way for life to take less of a toll on you or our work to take less of a toll on you? That's what you're getting at. Absolutely. Joe, you've spoken really eloquently and had people on your show talking about the generational differences, an amazing generational difference about Gen Z and millennials from Gen X, which I am is that they don't look at, they don't put themselves in compartments. They don't say, well, this is professional development. That has nothing to do with my personal life. Or this is my personal time. I would never think about work. They they see themselves as three-dimensional people with all their identities all the time. The advantage to that is you don't have to say, so that you can be a better employee, you must do this resilience work. It's because I care about you and I see that you are navigating a lot, I found a resource to help all of us navigate this stuff and come through it the kind of people we want to be. Yep. Fantastic. And yes, I'm a Gen Z, or excuse me, I'm a Gen Xer with you, my friend. We tend to be a little bit cynical, but we're still here. So where can we folks are. get the book? Uh, easiest thing to do is to go to the website stressedtoresilient.com. Fantastic. And last but not least, my friend, tell me a little bit about why companies hire you and how you help them. Thank you. 
the biggest thing that I can do for companies right out of the gate is help them when they're navigating a big change or have a big change that is going to cost a lot of money or has right on the horizon, figure out where the resistance is coming from. I call it a change resistance exam. And that allows you to figure out what the friction points are. Like when you're hanging a door and you open and close it the first time and you see where does it stick. So I help people figure out where the change is sticking so that they can smooth that out and build skills so that that change navigation becomes more competent. I can't make it more welcome. I can't make our brains love change, but I can help with the skills that get us through it towards our intention and purpose. Fantastic. And what's the website? How do they find you online so they can get in touch? AskDrG.com. Easy. Well, thank you so much for being here with us, my friend. There is a chance I may call you later and ask you to record the 14-year-old voice that you gave me earlier, like, what's up, bro? Because I want that as my GPS voice. I feel like that would be highly entertaining. Would you do that for me? Dude, turn it the corner and at. Perfect. All right, friends. Thank you to Dr. G. Check out her book, From Stress to Resilient, The Guide to Handle More and Feel It Less. If you got something out of our show today, please take a moment and leave us a review. Reviews have a lot to do with whether or not shows get traction, shows get distributed, shows build an audience, and we are always trying to uh, continue to fulfill our mission of filling the world with better bosses. So if you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review. Until next time, Thank you, Boss Heroes, for all that you do to take care of so many. We'll see you next time. This show is sponsored by Joe Mull and Associates. Remember, commitment comes from better bosses. Visit joemull.com today.